Good morning. Uh, my name is Tarek George. I'm one of the pastors on staff here. And if you are just joining us, uh, welcome. We are in a special sermon series looking at the book of Ephesians, at some of the teachings of Paul and what he has to say about the work of the Trinity in the work of salvation that we belong to. And so if you have your bulletins, you can flip to the back. There's a scripture reading there and you can follow along. And uh, Annabeth is going to come lead us in the reading of God's word. Please give your attention to it. Our scripture today is from Ephesians 1, 11 through 14. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Well, it was just earlier this month when my wife and I sat down to draft our last will and testament. Our son is now 18 months old, and we decided that if anything were ever happened to us, we had to make sure that there was a plan in place to make sure that he would be well cared for. And so last Wednesday, we met in an executive office, myself, Kathy, and our lawyer, and we did just that. Our lawyer took down our pertinent information, he inquired about our home and our possessions, and then he asked us this question, what is to happen to your estate that is everything you own of value at the time of your death? Well, my wife and I looked at each other, and we didn't hesitate for a moment. We turned to him with a mixture of joy and trepidation, and we said to him, we want everything we own to be given to our children as an inheritance. He wrote down our decision, put together our will, and then we signed and sealed the deal. And just like that, just like that, our son had obtained an inheritance. You know, as we come to our passage this morning, Paul makes the case that something similar has actually taken place in the heavenly realm. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul invites us to peek behind the curtain, as it were, into an executive office in heaven. He shows us an astonishing meeting that is taking place between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit before the very foundation of the world. What, you may ask, are they discussing Paul tells us they are discussing the last will and testament of Jesus Christ. All of the heavenly host is dumbfounded. They can't believe what they are seeing and hearing amongst the Godhead. This is absolutely insane. The murmurs and whispers grow louder now, and unable to contain themselves any longer, one of the angels dares to ask, Lord, what is to happen to your state that is everything you own of value at the time of your death. It is in that moment that you see every person in the Trinity turn and look at the other. No one hesitates. The son turns towards the angel, and with a mixture of joy and trepidation, he says these same words. We want everything we own to be given to our children as an inheritance. 
Men and women, as we open the Bible this morning, Paul wants you to peek behind the curtain and see what God has done for you in all eternity. In our passage today, Paul writes to Christians to assure them of the salvation that they actually possess in Christ Jesus. Because truth be told, I think there are times in our lives when we're tempted to doubt that certainty, the certainty of this inheritance or our suitability for it. And when that happens, when that happens, Paul asks you to remember only these two things. First, God's purpose for you. And second, God's promise in you. God's purpose for you and his promise in you. We'll begin with the first point. Well, if you've been tracking with us over the last few weeks in our Ephesians series, Paul has been explaining the gospel. In verses 1 to 10, he's explained how God has been fulfilling his plan to save his people from their sin by choosing them, redeeming them, and restoring them to himself through the work of Jesus Christ. If you were with us last Sunday, Paul explained what believers have been saved from, that is their sin. And this morning, he begins by speaking about what believers have been saved to and for, that is, an inheritance. He says in verse 11, in him, that is Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, one of the curious things you'll notice about this passage is that Paul never explicitly tells us what this inheritance is. However, he affirms two things in our text that give us a clue about what he means. Look with me at the passage. The first is that believers have already obtained this inheritance, at least in part, now, presently, verse 11. And the second is that believers are also waiting to acquire full possession of it one day in the future, verse 14. So, What is he saying? Well, as one scholar puts it, we think Paul views this inheritance as the sum total of everything extraordinary and wonderful that God has promised to his people in salvation. There are incredible blessings that believers receive through salvation now, certainly. But at the same time, at the same time, we are waiting the full culmination of this salvation event. In other words, What the Christian is experiencing now in this life is but a foretaste of the inheritance that will one day be theirs in eternity. That's what this is saying. That's what Paul is promising them here, even with a guarantee. Verse 14. You know, commentators have noted that Paul's tone and language here seem to suggest that he is probably trying to assure them of their hope in the Christian faith. And it's here, I think, that we're meant to pause and ask Why? What is happening in the midst of the Ephesian church that would stir Paul to encourage them here with these words? What are they presently needing and longing for for the good of their faith? I want to suggest that it's this, that they really, really need assurance in the Christian faith. And I think you and I do too. You see, Ephesus was a city known to be the epicenter of pagan thinking and worship. You couldn't walk down the street without seeing a whole plethora of different idols and temples to various gods. In Acts 19, we actually get a first-hand look at Paul's time in Ephesus. He arrives and begins telling people about the gospel and the hope found in Jesus. Many believe and begin persuading others to do the same. Many, however are angry and antagonistic towards Paul and these new converts. 
You need only read Acts 19 to see that a full riot breaks out in the city because the culture cannot stomach the good news of the gospel. These new Christians are harassed and mocked for being foolish, narrow-minded, intolerant, and brainwashed because they have believed something so absurd as the message of Christianity. They inhabit a city that is determined that they are completely out of their mind and out of their depth for believing what they do about salvation, Jesus, and eternal life. I wonder, does that sound relatable to you? I want to tell you that this is not just their context. It's yours also. And it's into this context that Paul wants to preach a word of assurance And so he reminds them, as he reminds us, of God's purpose. He says in verse 11, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to what? God's purpose. He's calling them to remember God's purpose for their lives, namely through predestination. Why? It's because that is to be a source of assurance for us in the Christian life. It is a doctrine that is meant to reassure us in the midst of an unbelieving world. I mean, these guys are wondering, maybe like you've been wondering, if the gospel is true and it's such good news, why are there so many intelligent and reasonable people in the culture who can't believe it? Is it possible that maybe they're right to be skeptical? And maybe in some of your weakest moments, you've wondered to yourself, am I crazy? Am I crazy to believe what I believe? Paul says, no, you're not crazy. You're predestined. If you're a Christian, the reason you are able to believe the gospel in the midst of a world of unbelief is not because you are more godly or moral or reasonable or even spiritually sensitive. Paul is saying that your ability to believe the gospel has actually nothing to do with you. If you are a believer, the reason you are such is because God predestined you for salvation. And the reason that you have an inheritance stored up for you at all is because God planned it from the very beginning. How do I know that? Well, if you read the previous sections, this is actually part of the message that Paul has been proclaiming. You may remember in your Bibles what he writes earlier in verses 4 to 5. He says, God chose us in Him, that is Christ, before the foundation of the world. In love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons. Why does that matter? Well, anyone hearing these words in the ancient world knows that there are certain benefits that come with being a son. It means that you are an heir to your family's fortunes. You stand to inherit and receive all the wealth and riches that your family has accrued and saved up in this life just for you. And this is precisely what Paul is getting at. He's saying if you have trusted in Jesus, it is because God has thought of you and loved you before the foundation of the world, and you have been adopted into His family. And because you are now God's child, you are now awaiting a glorious inheritance that your heavenly Father has put away in trust just for you. Do you understand? He's saying, you didn't choose God, my friend. He chose you. 
And that's why you should be really and truly assured in the faith. Now, I want to pause here for a moment because I know that there are many of us who find this idea of predestination quite difficult to accept. The concept for many of us just conjures up this God who seems unfair, unjust, or maybe even unloving. We've wondered, how is it right and fair for God to choose only some for salvation and leave others in their sin? What kind of God freely gives an inheritance to some and leaves everyone else spiritually broke? Surely that kind of God cannot be a God of love, can He? I want to take you back to last week when I signed my last will and testament. Kathy and I made a decision that when we pass away, all our wealth, our home, possessions, and valuables should go to our son as his inheritance. You understand that I chose to do that because I love my son, and I want what's best for him. Now, would anyone say it's unfair for me to give my wealth to my children as an inheritance? Does anyone have a right to tell me what I should or should not do with my wealth? Am I obligated to give my hard-earned resources to anybody but whom I choose? Would I be quote-unquote unloving because I choose to provide for my children in particular and not for every other person in the world? No, I would not. No, I would not. In fact, ironically, the very opposite is true. It is incumbent on me as a father to love discriminatively. You realize that whatever else I love, my fatherhood demands that I love my children in particular, and it would be right and good for them to expect that from me. You understand that that doesn't mean that I hate everybody else who is not my child, but rather I love with an intensity that which is my own. And so it is with God. So it is also with God. He is a father who is waiting to lavish his love upon his children. And it's so important that you hear that this morning. Men and women, I want you to know that Paul's insistence on predestination here is not meant to be some angry theological debate. I fear sometimes in the church that we just fight over these things and get really worked up about what we perceive to be the character of God. For Paul, predestination is the grounds for why he believes he is really and truly a child of God, loved by his heavenly Father before the foundation of the world, bought by the precious blood of Jesus the Son, and adopted into God's family by the power of the Holy Spirit. I mean, look at this. Don't you see? It is a doctrine of sweet assurance to him. And he is writing to you because it is meant to be that for you also. It's hard, I know. But listen to what he's saying. However frustrated you may feel about this doctrine, you need to know that your salvation hangs upon it this morning. God had to predestine you or you wouldn't be here. Understand that an inheritance by its very nature cannot be earned. It is entirely a free gift. When you receive an inheritance, you are receiving the benefits that someone else has worked to procure on your behalf. You did nothing to contribute. Nothing. 
And I think that's why Paul keeps insisting that everything about the Christian life is experienced in relation to Jesus Christ. He keeps writing over and over this one phrase, in him, in him, in him. In him we were predestined. In him we were redeemed. In him we've obtained an inheritance. From start to finish, everything about the Christian life is contingent on Christ. And here's the kicker. You ready? Paul claims that the degree to which you are able to appreciate this teaching is the degree to which your life will truly reflect the praise of God's glory. Verse 12, which means this, that the doctrine of predestination is a glorious doctrine, and it is meant to be taught and cherished by those in the church. It is not like some people suppose a doctrine to be hidden away out of fear of causing offense to believers and unbelievers alike. Listen, if God's word is true, as it surely is, let the whole world be offended, but you ought to care not. If God says, this brings me glory, that we may not yet fully understand and comprehend it, men and women, we must humbly respond, amen. Amen. Grace Toronto, Paul wrote this passage so that you might have assurance. I want you to pause for a moment and just consider this. Just consider this that out of all the people on the face of the earth who have ever lived and will ever live, God chose you. God chose you. Out of an estimated 117 billion people who have ever been born, God decided to set his love in Christ upon you. I don't need to tell you that those are incredibly small odds, but he did it. He did it. He chose you. According to his purpose and the counsel of his will, he worked all things so that you would hear the gospel, turn from your sins, put your trust in Jesus, and be to the praise of his glory. Paul is saying, don't let yourself miss what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Don't do it. This is God's purpose for you who are a Christian. And it is God's purpose for you who have yet to put your faith in Jesus. So now consider that and let it give you assurance. This is Paul's first point. But now secondly, Paul also wants to assure these Ephesians by reminding them also of God's promise. He has told them about God's purpose to bring them to faith. Now he begins to tell them about God's promise to keep them in that faith. He says in verse 13, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with what? The promised Holy Spirit. He assures them that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, is present and active in their faith. Paul says that he seals believers for their inheritance. What does he mean here? Well, a seal on a document validates its authenticity. It indicates that what is sealed comes from and belongs to someone. Similarly, Paul is saying that the Holy Spirit puts his seal on us and certifies that we belong to this God. It is he who enables believers to hear the truth and respond to that truth, 
growing up in the faith until that day when we can finally receive our inheritance. Do you follow me? Let me illustrate this for you by way of example. When we drew up our last will and testament, we were asked to nominate a trustee and guardian in the event of our death. We were told that this should be a person who can care for our son after we're gone, provide for him from our resources, and support him until he is of age to fully come into his inheritance. That's what a guardian and trustee does. And Paul is basically saying, that the Holy Spirit agreed to take on that role in the lives of all God's children. After Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, He sent the Holy Spirit to come and live inside believers. The Holy Spirit's role, men and women, like a trustee and guardian, is to sport and look after believers in the physical absence of Jesus. So why is Paul telling the Ephesians all of this? I think it's because they really need that assurance. Where does it ultimately come from? Paul answers, it's God's promise in you. It's God's promise in you. You're forgetting the power of the Holy Spirit. By the way, they're not the only ones, are they? Most of us in the church think and talk quite a bit about God the Son. We worship and think pretty highly of God the Father. And if we're really honest, we almost never acknowledge or talk about God the Holy Spirit. And that's a real shame. That's a real shame because it is the Spirit's role to assure us and strengthen us in the faith. There are many of us, I think, who feel discouraged, anxious, and restless in our relationship with God. We constantly wonder, am I doing enough? Am I good enough? Am I where I need to be spiritually? Is God pleased with me? Or is he utterly disappointed in what he sees in my life? If that's you, and you found yourself thinking that way, can I just encourage you? Can I just encourage you? Let me tell you something. God's Spirit has not crossed the threshold of heaven to come to you and enter your life just for you to go hang your head in defeat. The Apostle Paul, writing in 2 Timothy, says, God has not given you a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Do you hear the assurance in his voice? This passage promises that the Holy Spirit is resting upon you, Christian. And you may be wondering, but how do I know if I'm truly saved? How do I know if I truly have the Holy Spirit? My life feels quite ordinary. Look at what Paul is saying here. Do you sincerely believe in Jesus? Well, then you have the Holy Spirit. (laughs) You couldn't do that on your own, not unless God's Spirit came to live inside of you. Paul says that the Spirit seals us and he guarantees our inheritance. In plain language, that means that he will not fail to do the things that God has promised. If he has brought you to faith, he will most certainly keep you in that faith. You cannot lose your salvation. You can't. And yet undoubtedly, it would seem at times that our lived experience might suggest otherwise. 
Many of us, I think, have maybe seen friends and family who once professed the Christian faith now completely reject it. Perhaps you're wondering if there are Christians in the world who have fallen away from the faith. How does that give me any assurance? Listen, we don't have all the answers, but it would seem from the evidence of all the Scripture that Paul's words here can indeed be trusted. The Bible teaches that true believers, those whom God has predestined, will most certainly be saved and obtain an inheritance in the end. They may wander or struggle for a time. They may even fall into grievous sins. But one way or another, God will certainly save those whom He loves in the end. Guaranteed. Guaranteed. Jesus Himself says to the crowds in John 6, All that the Father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never, I will never cast out. And this is the will of Him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, nothing, nothing of all that He has given me. We'll raise it up on the last day. These words to you, church, are not just empty promises. Jesus knew that the Father had predestined believers for salvation, and Jesus went to the cross to die for those believers. Paul understands that these same believers are really and truly secured by the promised Holy Spirit. He is convinced of this. And he wants you to be convinced also. Remember, Paul is writing this letter to the Ephesians for their assurance. This is not a doctrine that is meant to encourage callous or presumptuous Christianity. Not at all. Paul is not saying that because God has predestined you and given you His Holy Spirit that you can just sit back and float your way into eternal life. No, no, not at all. The Christian life is hard work. It is. It takes dedication, sacrifice, and resilience. You have to give it your all, 100%. He's not saying that no effort or diligence is required from you. Rather, rather, he is saying that because you are predestined and because you have the Spirit, you can be assured that your effort and diligence will actually result in success. You need not be anxious. In other words, your chief concern in the Christian life should not be to wander around constantly asking and second-guessing, am I truly and really saved? Rather, your chief concern should be to lay hold of the faith as best as you can and practice it with diligence and care because God has promised to honor that in you. You see, what Paul is saying is that God will never fail in his work. He always accomplishes that which the gospel he purposes, and the Spirit is his guarantee. The Greek word he uses here for guarantee is arabon. It is a word that roughly translates to down payment or first installment. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that interesting? It's almost as if he's saying the Holy Spirit is financing your inheritance. Even in the lowest season of your life as a Christian, when everything is going completely and horribly wrong, and you feel yourself so spiritually broke before God and the world, your bank account always has a balance. Paul is saying that the Spirit is your guarantee. He sees you and He knows you more intimately than you even know yourself. 
I want to tell you that no one, not you, your family, your pastor, or your church is more committed to your success in the Christian life than God's Spirit. And because He is so committed to you, He has promised to supply you with everything necessary to live the Christian life. How does He do that? Well, let me tell you from Scripture some of the ways that the Holy Spirit assists God's children. He regenerates and converts unbelievers. He guards and protects believers. He convicts them of sin and leads them to repentance. He helps them read and understand the Bible. He guides them in good works. He assists them in prayer. He comforts them in times of sorrow. He gives them peace when they are distressed. He sanctifies them in the faith. He gives them gifts for building up the church. He helps them know the will of God. He brings unity to Christ's body. He empowers believers for mission. Do you think that maybe he's important? I want you to stop and just consider for a moment. Is there any aspect of the Christian life that feels unattainable to you in this present moment? Are you afraid of committing your life to Jesus? Are you struggling with certain sins? Is it hard right now to pick up the Bible? Are you finding it difficult to love your spouse? Do you want more courage to tell people about Jesus? Listen, whatever you need, whether extraordinary or mundane, the Spirit has been given to you for that very purpose. And so you ask the Spirit, you ask the Spirit to do in your life what He has promised to do for all believers everywhere. Paul is promising here assurance, not just for your salvation, but for all of the Christian life, all of it. Because you see, all of the Christian life is meticulously ordered and held together by the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the Father who predestines, the Son who redeems, and the Spirit who seals all of those who trust in Jesus. Paul reiterates in verse 11 that God works all things, all things, according to the counsel of His will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. He wants to remind us, I think, about that executive meeting in heaven. You see, it was there that God determined that the inheritance, this inheritance, would one day belong to you and I. Except every person of the Trinity knew that this inheritance could only be procured at a great cost. For the last will and testament of a person can only come into effect by their death. I want to tell you that God saw you and thought of you before the foundation of the world and he predestined you to this inheritance. The son looked at you and your sin, and with a mixture of joy and trepidation, he said to you these same words, I want everything I own to be given to you, my child, as an inheritance. And so that the last will and testament of Jesus could come into effect, Christ signed his name for you in blood. He went to the cross so that you would receive the forgiveness of your sins and be welcomed into this family of God. And then he rose again and sent his spirit so that you would know these things in certainty. It is in him 
in him, Paul says, that we have redemption, adoption, and a glorious inheritance. If you are here and you're exploring the Christian faith, I want to tell you that God has prepared a real and beautiful eternity for all those who trust in Jesus. If you can believe that all of the wonder, beauty, and pleasure that you enjoy in this life is just a pale, pale reflection of all the inheritance that God has in store for you. And I get it. Maybe this all sounds a little confusing. You may be listening to all this and asking, well, how do I know if I'm predestined? I don't know. And I can't know if you are predestined. Only God knows that. But I'll say this to you. I can't imagine what on earth must have driven you out here this morning on a rainy Sunday to come here and listen to these things, if not God himself. If you feel God stirring something in you to want to know more and seek after him, I invite you to come talk with us afterwards. We'd love to help you consider what this all might mean for you. For the Christian here, Paul wants you to have real assurance as you remember God's purpose for you and his promise in you. Paul is convinced that as you seek to more deeply understand these things, you will increasingly be to the praise of his glory. So, how can you do that starting today? Well, I have three suggestions for you. They all happen to begin with a W. First, be diligent in the word that we have studied this morning. I recognize that some of the implications of what Paul teaches in this passage are not easy to accept overnight. They weren't for me. They typically aren't for most people. Pray about that. Pray about that. Wrestle with the scriptures and search them sincerely. Ask good questions and engage rather than disengage from this word. And as you do that, keep your heart warm towards God. Whatever he may choose to reveal to you about himself, be willing to accept. Second, be diligent in witness. This passage gives you assurance that God's purposes will always, always prevail. The Spirit enables people to hear and believe the gospel for their salvation, but, but, they do have to hear about it personally from you. I believe it was Wayne Gretzky who said, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. I think that's true of evangelism also. If you have any gratitude, listen, if you have any gratitude towards the people who stepped up and found the courage to tell you the good news, go and do likewise for others. Go and do likewise. I would imagine that you will probably miss a whole ton of shots. But if it's of any comfort, Paul assures you that you will make 100% of those that God intends. And third and finally, be diligent in worship. Be diligent in worship. Spend some time this week just appreciating that you have a share in the last will and testament of Jesus. I know that seems like a simple suggestion. It's so important, so important that you leave this morning with more than just mere knowledge. The things that you are learning in the Christian life should be shaping you into a more worshipful person, not just making you more informed. And so you take what you know from today and every Sunday and you go convert it into worship. That's what Paul is saying. And in all things, 
Let the church be to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for this text, which is difficult to understand and difficult to read and apply, but we pray that you would give us sweet and real assurance from it. We ask that you'd help us to remember your purpose for us and your promise in us. Make us, we pray, to the praise of your glory. Make us diligent in your word, in our witness to our neighbors, and in worship to you. That we would all things, in all things, be to the praise of your glory. Amen.